So we've had a, a host of great guest speakers here this summer. Uh, I realized over this weekend that we had two Dr. Eric's. How odd is that? We had Dr. Eric Redman and Dr. Eric Tully. Both did an amazing job. If you didn't see those sermons, I encourage you to do so. Uh, some have asked, when are we getting back into Revelation? And we will get back into Revelation next week. And so I was excited because our third guest speaker is going to be coming, uh, Lee Eklov. He's someone who's been here uh, before. Many of you have remember him and have always asked, when's he coming back? Uh, with guest speakers, you usually let them speak on whatever they want, but he was uh, in his retirement years said, what are you preaching on these days? And I said, Revelation. He said, ooh, I'll jump into that. And so he's going to be coming back with Revelation 12 next week, and then we will continue in it from that point on. I have, uh, I want to show you a family addition to the DeRoshi household this summer. So... You know why preachers do this? They put pictures of their puppies on there because no matter how bad the sermon is, you'll never remember it. You'll say, puppy, that was such a great sermon. <laughs> so this is Theo. He's our new puppy. And yes, he is really, really cute. Uh, he also has a mean puppy streak in him. <laughs> and a lot of you know what I'm talking about. That little guy will give you a run for your money. In fact, we had an interaction between him and I this morning that... Uh, tested my patience, so to speak. We love him to death, but we're looking forward to when the puppy phase wears off, if you know what I mean. Some of you have a hard time believing that, but it's true. It's, uh, maturity can be a good thing, right? And it's not just with puppies, it's with humans as well. Maturity is a good thing. When there's a four-year-old that stands up with all the gusto they have and they say, I'm the greatest at this or I'm the greatest at that, it's endearing to us and we tap them on the head or we say, you're right, you are the greatest at that. But when a 65-year-old does that, we say it's time to grow up, right? Maturity is a good thing. And it's not just physically or emotionally, it's spiritually as well. Spiritual maturity is a good thing. Jesus had a half-brother named James, and James wrote a letter in the New Testament. And the whole meaning around his letter was that Christians would grow spiritually, that they would mature, that they wouldn't stay stuck in elementary things, but the whole reason he wrote this book is that they would grow and they would mature, that they would have a true and genuine, real faith that was tested and would stand the test of time. So if you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to turn it on or open it up to James chapter 1. And I want to look at how do we know if we have true faith? How do we know if we have true faith? How can I make sure I keep growing as a Christian? How do I set myself up for spiritual maturity? This is what James is getting at and he's going to help us with this morning. My main point this morning is the same as James's main point in the passage we're looking at. And according to James, you cannot have true faith unless you have a right relationship with God's Word. You cannot have true faith unless you have a right relationship with God's Word. Now, if you're a Christian, you're thinking, well, wait a minute. Um, 
isn't it you can't have true faith unless you have a right relationship with God? And of course that's true. We look at the whole counsel of the Bible and the first step is to come to God. But in the passage we're going to look at, James is very specific. And he says, you can't have a true relationship, a true faith, unless you have a right relationship with God's word. In fact, God's word is what helps you have a right relationship with God. And so there's this relationship with God's word that James is specifically diving into. And he says, true faith is a right relationship with God through the scriptures. And he starts this way even before the text that we're going to look at. We're going to start in verse 22. But up in verses 19 and 21, he says to us, first you need to be someone who listens to God's word. You have to listen to it. Then he says in that same passage, 20, 19 to 20, you have to have an eagerness for God's word. You have to have a heart that welcomes God's word and is, wants to hear it and accepts it. And then he launches into this teaching about true faith and spiritual maturity. And he says it comes to those who hold God's word, who hold the Bible, as their primary authority and priority. They see the Bible as something they love, that they can't get enough of. They see the Bible as something that, the, that just pulls them closer so we want to dive into this and look first at the source of true faith, verses 22 to 25. Follow along as I read James 1, 22 to 25. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom. Isn't it interesting that so many people think the perfect law, the Old Testament, the Bible is something that's a chain around our neck, but it says the perfect law gives freedom. Anyone who does that and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. When it comes to the Bible, when it comes to God's word, hearing without doing is foolishness at best, dangerous at worst. It's foolishness at best, dangerous at worst. It's like getting up in the morning, looking at yourself in the mirror, and not knowing who you are walking away and forgetting what you look like. The one who doesn't just hear the Bible, but does the Bible, it says will be blessed by the creator and redeemer God. They'll be blessed. This is the person who lingers over God's words, who reflects, who thinks, who takes time with, who makes space in their life for, who eliminates distractions and says, I want to focus in on the words of this book. This is the person that is blessed by God. There is no forgetfulness of God's words. And I'm not talking about, I forget where that word is. That's a normal thing. I'm talking about you have an honor for God's word and you keep it in the forefront because you think of it often. 
The person who does this regularly puts themselves before God and is more humble and vulnerable to God's word than anywhere else or with anyone else. And they experience true freedom. They become people who are formed by scripture to live for Jesus. Did you hear that? Let me say it again. They become people who are formed by scripture to live for Jesus. That's the Christian life. Formed by scripture to live for Jesus. These are people who are eager to meet God in the Bible. They want to practice what they're learning. They spend time in the Bible. They absorb it. And they know if they rely on themselves alone to get through this life, they won't make it. Non-Christians or people who don't believe in Jesus tend not to care about the things of God. But what we see James doing here is he's giving a warning to Christians, a difficult, tough warning. He's not pulling any punches. He's getting in our face this morning. And he's saying for us Christians, there's a danger here you need to pay attention to. And that's what we see in the text. The danger is that we obey outwardly, however, inwardly there's no real true concern or regard for God's word. We know how to go through the Christian motions. We know how to play church. We know how to play Christians. We know the things we're supposed to say, the things we're supposed to do. But when we are alone and there's no one watching, what regard is God's word in our hearts? That's what James is getting at in this passage. I had a seminary professor I loved dearly, and one of the things that he would do regularly after he taught us, he would say, okay, we're going to stop that. Now let's talk about what I just taught you. Let's talk about what we just learned. And he'd always say this, and he said, the reason we're doing this is because we never want to get into a place, he would say, where the notes of the professor are going to the notes of the student without going through the mind of either. That can happen in church right here. The notes of the preacher can go to the notes of the people listening without going through the mind and the heart of either. And that's a dangerous place to be in because God's word is too precious to let that happen. Pastor Paul Felix said this, there's no place for an obedience that does not touch the inner life. You see, obedience isn't just going through the Christian motions and performing like a Christian. Even if we're not performing for anyone watching, sometimes we perform for ourselves in this kind of fake, made up, I'm supposed to do this way. James is saying your faith needs to be deeper than that. True faith shows itself inwardly and outwardly. Jesus painted a picture of this when he was on earth. He saw a group of people who lived like that, that they were perfect in their outward performance. They knew all the things they were supposed to do. They knew how to look like a super Christian, and they did it often, to the point where they probably forgot they were even doing it. It just became like this automatic rote thing that they performed. And Jesus saw that, and when he saw that, he told a story to get to the heart of it. You don't have to turn there. You can just listen. It's in Luke 18. And Jesus says this in Luke 18, 9. It says, 
to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. You see, when you have this outward faith where you perform the Christian thing, you know what the fruit of that is? Is that you get confident in your own righteousness and you look down on everyone else. These people he's talking to are experts at that. And then it says this, Jesus told them this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get. And then Jesus goes on the story and says, but the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you that this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. The Pharisee knew better than everybody how to perform Christianity, how to have this outward appearance, but their hearts were so far from God. God was not pleased with what he saw in their hearts. He, he, it wasn't a warm place. It wasn't where he wanted them to be. And in this story, the Pharisee didn't do any of these evil acts that he mentioned. All the things he did were good things. Yet his faith was not acceptable to God. He did not have a faith that was true. He did not have a faith that would save him, that would redeem him. And that's a scary, scary thought. So there's this false faith that looks religious, but it doesn't save us or bring us into right relationship with God. That's a dangerous thing. So how do we know if we have true faith or false faith? James gives us a picture of each in these next few verses. So let's look at a picture of false faith in verse 26. James says, Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. Let me stop right there and just qualify this. Sometimes, if you've been in the church a while, especially the evangelical church for a while, you don't like the word religion. So you say, hey, I'm not, I'm not talking religion, I'm talking relationship, and it's all about relationship. Religion, bad. Relationship, good. Just substitute that word religion for faith or spirituality. Because back then it wasn't, had the, didn't have the baggage it has today. I don't think it's a bad word, but some people do, and I just want to address that right away as we go on. So he's saying religion or faith, or those who consider themselves religious or faithful, and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues, deceive themselves, and their spirituality, their faith, their religion is worthless. James focuses then on something really, really practical to teach us something really, really spiritual. He goes now to talk about something really practical to teach us about something really spiritual. And he's saying here, this is what false faith looks like. 
But first he qualifies it and he says, those who consider themselves, or in other translations it says, if anyone thinks. So he's saying that everybody who's a Christian is susceptible to this. You can be deceived. You can easily begin to think that church activity and church attendance and giving money and doing all these things that you're supposed to do as a Christian, doing that with an empty heart you could think is a good thing. And all of us are prone to it, is what he's saying. But if you do that out of outward appearance instead of an overflow from the heart, James is warning us that that's a dangerous place. Those whose faith is more about outward performance than an inward reality need to realize that that faith is worthless, he says. And so then James goes on to say, how can you tell if you have the true faith that is from the heart and overflowing, or how can you tell that it's a false faith that's just outward performance? He says, can you control your tongue? What? It almost doesn't make sense. Why would he, as he's painting this picture about true faith and false faith, bringing something practical like how we use our mouth? He's using the picture of the tongue because obviously words matter, but don't miss that he's getting at something even bigger. James is delivering a gut punch. He's saying that lack of control when it comes to speaking is a trait of someone who looks spiritual and religious. However, their life is unrestrained and uncontrolled, and they do whatever they please. Which means most often than not, they lack spiritual maturity. Or at worst, they possess this false faith. In other words, a habitual, uncontrolled tongue is a sign of spiritual maturity or false faith because the heart of the person has not been transformed by the word of God. It's a heart that hasn't been marinated in the goodness of God's words. It's a heart that has not been in that place where you take the holy word of God and the Holy Spirit comes and interacts with you. And you sense God's presence. One of the fruits of true faith is a self-control of the tongue because there's a self-control of the heart. And that can only happen with a heart that presents themselves regularly to God's word and submits themselves regularly to God's word and looks at God's word and when God's word calls things out in their life, they're quick to repent and they say, God, I want to live for you. Please forgive me for that. Teach me more of your ways. They're under the control and the authority of God's word. They submit what they think to God's word. God's word means more to them than their feelings. God's word means more to them than their thoughts. God's word means more to them than what they hear from broadcasters. God's word means more to them what they hear from their coworkers and other family members. And as they submit themselves to God's word, there's an interaction with the Holy Spirit that happens that empowers them to live the Christian life 
The only way you can live the Christian life is when the Holy Spirit is taking residence inside you and empowering you to do so. It's called the fruit of the Spirit. And one of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control. And that's what James is honing in on here when he talks about the tongue. James says a tongue out of control is a dangerous weapon. And we all know that. It does not please God. Lying, deceiving, gossiping, slandering, tearing down, exaggerating, flattering, boasting, complaining, arguing, overly and unfairly criticizing, and more and more and more can not only destroy a church, but it can destroy people's hearts. And not just the ones hearing, but the ones speaking. James Goodives in more of this in chapter 3. But what he's telling us here is a failure to control the tongue is a sign that there's a failure to control one's life, which is a sign that there's not a lot of spiritual growth happening. James says, if you want to know if you're growing, what comes out of your mouth? Ouch. I told you, he's not pulling any punches here. Now, Every single one of us lose the battle over our tongue at times. But what he's painting here is this habitual lack of control. And then he says something I want you to make sure you pay attention to. He goes on to say that the person that doesn't spend much time with God in his word, but continues to go through the religious Christian motions... Notice it says, they're not deceiving others. Who are they deceiving? Themselves. You see, we think we can go and pretend to be a Christian and go through these motions and perform so others would believe and be deceived in who we are. But James says, you're not deceiving others. You're deceiving yourself. The people who live lives apart from God's word, but play the Christian performance, don't realizing they're damaging themselves. They're damaging their own hearts. They're deceiving the very core of who they are as a person made in God's image. Because when you do that and you stop the flow of God's word and instead you put on this fake mask to play a Christian, you're not allowing the instrument that God wants to use to shape you and bring you into the person he's created you to be to take root. Instead, you're cutting that off and you're just playing this little game. And your heart begins to shrivel and you begin to become cold and angry and bitter far from the person God calls us to be. That's why this can be dangerous. See, false faith does that. It deceives you into thinking that you're right with God when you're not. I remember growing up in my youth pastor's home I spent time with their family because my parents were going through a divorce and lots of things were happening. And, and so they invited me to live with them and I so enjoyed that time. And my youth pastor and his wife, Ross and Mary, became dear friends. And I remember his wife, Ross's wife, Mary, and I would have lots of conversations. 
And when our kids or myself would say something that was kind of bitter because we were just performing and not doing that, she'd have this little phrase she'd say, and she'd say, you know, sounds like you need to get your heart right. Sounds like you need to get your heart right. Getting your heart right means going back to God's word and allowing his word to read us and say, God, forgive me for this. James says a faith that is all about outward performance is useless. Doesn't help the person at all. Faith that expresses an outward performance alone but is not inward is a false faith and it's not acceptable to God. That's uncomfortable. Some of us are saying, whoa, stop. Let's stop that. Let's get to how do we make sure that doesn't happen. That's uncomfortable. We don't want to deal with that. Bring back the puppy. It's good for us to sit in the discomfort. What James is doing here is very uncomfortable, but it's very good. Because it shows that the Holy Spirit is moving in our hearts and he wants to change us. You see, we can go to God in our spiritual immaturity and say, God, that's me. I put on this Christian act, but I never spend time in your word. I never think of you. I, I know how to play the Christian game, but my faith is so shallow. My heart is so cold. Please forgive me. Enter into that place. You can do that. There's a kindness to God that welcomes that kind of heart. There's a kindness to our Savior Jesus that says, when you blow it like that, just come and own up and say, this is where I'm at. He loves that. He expects that. He doesn't want you to play games with him or anyone else. He wants you to be honest and real. He knows your heart. You see, there's a difference between spiritual immaturity and rebellion. They look the same. But there's a difference between spiritual maturity and rebellion. Spiritual immaturity wants Jesus. Rebellion doesn't. And we can go before God in our immaturity and say, God, will you please come and help me? When I read this in the word, God, it stings me because I know it's talking about me. Forgive me. And God is so faithful to that prayer. He's so faithful to come to that place. James goes on after giving us this picture of false faith. He gives us a picture and a marker of true faith, and he does that in verse 27. He says, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Just like an uncontrolled tongue is a sign of false faith. He now tells us what is a sign of true faith. False faith is worthless. But here he describes true faith. And the first word he uses to describe true faith is the word pure. It comes from a heart that's been changed. A heart that came to Christ. A heart that is regularly brought before truth and responds to it with all that it can. It's a heart that respects and longs for and honors God's word. It's a heart that allows the Holy Spirit to search them, 
with the Bible and be quick to humble themselves and repent and ask for forgiveness and say, I want to renew and follow again. Pure also means morally clean. There's a godliness to these hearts that may not be perfect, but when they blow it, they're quick to repent and get forgiven in God's sight and to move forward again. It's a heart that honors Christ. The second word he describes to describe true faith is faultless, meaning absolute rightness, free from compromise. And then notice in verse 27, he says that this pure and faultless faith is acceptable to God our Father. God is a personal God. Even in our immaturity, he interacts with us in a personal way, like a good father would. And this kind of faith, this true faith, passes the evaluation of our Heavenly Father, catches his eye as he looks at his children performing this true faith, which sometimes says, God, I need your forgiveness. Will you forgive me? I repent. That kind of spirit in the children of God catches the eye of the Father, and his heart is drawn to them in that place. For some, Father isn't a word that brings great memories or thoughts, but this Father is a perfect Father. This Father is the Father that you always dreamed of and more. True faith is found in a person who sits with the words of their father in front of them, and when no one is around and no one is noticing, they linger in the presence of their heavenly father. And they say, I don't want to leave this place. James isn't describing a distant God who has a scorecard, but one who interacts with us as we give ourselves to his word. It's a communion that's happening, a communication, a relationship that's taking place. He goes on to say that that kind of faith produces right actions. And the marker of this faith, he goes on to say, is that it produces a quiet compassion in the hearts of those who possess this true faith. Not a compassion that's broadcasted and performed so that all can see, but it's a compassion that's present in a way where they truly notice those who are in distress, those who are in need. And before they jump to how they got there and all the things they did to put them in that position themselves, a true faith is one whose heart is turned towards those in this distress. The word here, he says, it causes them to look after. This is an ancient way of saying true faith people have a compassion that notices first. They notice. Then they want to do something. Not for the world to see not for their own inner feeling good about themselves, but because this faith from God the Father is resonating in their heart, and as it resonates in their heart, there's some of what is God the Father is rubbed off onto us. And we begin to see those people through the eyes of our loving Savior. And he's always one that doesn't want to just notice, but he notices he thinks, 
and he moves, he acts. In James' day, there is no one more vulnerable than orphans and widows. And he says to look after, this is a true religion. He said the true people who's, who have this true faith in their hearts are the ones who are coming to the aid of these people that we see that are in front of us. And the results are a compassionate action that is real. See, that's the picture and the marker of the true faith. The picture is it's pure and faultless. The marker is it has a compassion to it. Author Nathaniel Hawthorne said this, no one for any considerable amount of time can wear one face to themselves and another face to the multitude without finally getting bewildered as to which face is really true. James is saying that here as well. His main point is you can't have true faith unless you have a right relationship with God's word. And false faith has symptoms like an uncontrolled tongue. And true faith has symptoms like purity, holiness, and a compassion for others. That's what he's saying in this text. And it's not an easy word for us to hear, but we need to hear it. So now the million-dollar question, how do I develop that true faith? How do I develop that? I don't want to be the person that has this empty, cold heart and pretends to be a Christian and goes through the motions and knowing I'm not really pleasing God. How do I do that? How do I develop true faith? Become a person who regularly spends time with God in his word. Become a person who regularly spends time with God in his word. I don't read very well. I don't like to read. There's so many tools now. Download an app and listen to it. There's so many ways we have in this day and age to get this word in our hearts. Don't bring the excuse you can't afford to do that any longer. God wants to know you. He wants to teach you. He wants to come to you. He wants to interact with you. He wants to transform you. He wants to show you the things in his heart he wants you to give up to him and he wants to place within your heart things he has for you. Don't stop it just because I don't read very well. Dive in. Become a person who regularly spends time with his word. Become what I call Isaiah 66 people. This is my prayer for us. I, I have certain prayers I pray for Crossview Church. This one's a regular one where I pray that these are the ones to whom the Father will look with favor. Those who are humble and contrite in spirit and tremble at my word. God, make us a people who come to your word humbly with a broken spirit because we need you and who tremble because your word is so precious to us. That's the person, it says, to whom God looks. God loves everybody, but his heart is captured by some things. And one of the things his heart is captured by, according to this, is when his people come with a humility and a brokenness and they tremble at God's word. His heart says, whoa, look at that. 
brings pleasure to the heart of God. We need to become people like that. I want to give you some practical helps as I close that will help us to do that. If you hang around Crossview Church anytime at all, you're going to hear me constantly say, there's four things you need to do to grow close to God. That's a question I get often. How do I grow close to God? There's four things. Prayer, scripture, reflection, and fellowship, hanging out with God's people. That's how you grow spiritually. Prayer, scripture, reflection, and hanging out with God's people, what we call fellowship. And so James is addressing the scripture and reflection part, so that's what I want to help you with. How do we do this? First of all, it's really simple. Pick a book of the Bible. Maybe this summer you've fallen back and you haven't read, spent much time in God's word. Pick a book that you're going to spend time in the rest of this summer. Maybe it's the book of James or Philippians or a gospel like Mark. But just pick a book in the New Testament I recommend and say, I'm going to dedicate myself to that book the rest of this summer. And then in that book, pick a chapter. Read one chapter regularly, preferably daily. Maybe make it a Monday to Friday thing. Every Monday to Friday, I'm going to take and read a chapter of the book of James. Monday, I'm going to do chapter one. Tuesday, I do chapter two. Wednesday, I do chapter three, and so on. And maybe you're finding, you know what? Let me let you in a secret. No one reads through a book of the Bible and has it all down. So maybe you do and say, I'm going to do James every week from now until summer's over or whatever you want to do. But pick a book and regularly read a chapter. Develop the habit. But here is a key, key thing. Don't do what James said and read this and then walk away and forget like it was, like you just looked at your face in the mirror and forgot who you were and walked away. That's why number three is so important. Reflect on what you're reading. If you're reading James chapter 1 and you say, i got to get through this chapter today, but in verse 3, something grabs your attention and you can't stop thinking about it, stay there at verse 3. God's doing something. Ask questions of what you're reading. Why do I feel like that? What's he doing? Why would God say that? Allow the word to read your thoughts and your mind and your heart. Engage with the word. Don't just let it scan through your eyes and move on, check, done. You have to reflect with this. You have to interact with it. You have to think about it. Perhaps journal or summarize. I don't journal. Well, maybe you should. And if you're not journaling, as you read through that chapter, think through, how would I just sum this up in one or two words? That's a great way to reflect and summarize. It's a way of journaling. Just thinking through, how would I sum up what I just read? What does he mean when he says this? Well, I see in here there's things about the tongue, and I see there's things, and that's not good. I see there's things about looking after orphan and widows. How would I sum this up? That's a great way to keep reflecting on God's word. And one of the great things about summing it up is it helps you not to leave it. After you do this and you sum it up, take what you summarize and think about that throughout your day. Don't leave Jesus in your time in the Bible. Take him with you as you carry out your day. Jesus, when you were talking about the orphan and widow and James, how does that interact with me right now? Let it linger. 
Become people that grow in that. If you're kind of the phone app person, I want to highlight one more tool that I think is just fantastic. Many of you use the YouVersion Bible on the phone, on your phone. Um, the YouVersion Bible has different reading plans you can do to help you spend time in God's Word. Uh, there's one I'd like to highlight in particular that I think is really good, and it's done by a guy named Tim Mackey. Tim Mackey was a pastor in our denomination at church in Madison called Blackhawk. He left Blackhawk to start this thing called the Bible Project, which is an amazing organization. I highly recommend it. Uh, they take and they interact the Bible stories with cartoon. It's, and in, it sounds crazy, but if you go look at it, you'll say, wow, it brings understanding in the Bible to life. And he uh, put together a reading plan in the version app called Love This Book. And there's four parts to it. This is what part one looks like. And so if you like that and you're into that, I highly recommend this plan. Love this book. Go through all four parts. He will walk you through the Bible in such a way it will create what the title says, a love for this book. And many of us, if we're honest, we don't have a love for this book. And we say, God, I need a love for this book. This will help you to do that. And he interacts some of those Bible Project videos into this plan. And I highly recommend you do it. So maybe for you, that's a place to start as well. However, whatever, do something. Take a step. It's too dangerous just to perform Christian performance without any kind of inward reality of faith. You don't want to be in that place. Jesus and James and many people have harsh words for that. There's a group of people that did amazing things in the Christian life, healing the sick, raising the dead, casting out the demons. They did all these big time things. They went before Jesus and you know what Jesus said? Depart from me, I never knew you. Interacting with God's word helps us to know God. And that's our goal, to know him. The word of the Lord is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And it brings us into God's presence so we can be with him in that place. Let's pray.